Lord, we have you be seated and uh, turn with me to Second Kings again. Let's look at uh, chapter five. Chapter five, and this is the story of Naaman. Again, a, another familiar story. Let me let me tell you why I think my mind uh, went to these uh, texts. Um, I know that after a Lord's Day of going through the uh, epistles in the morning, sometimes I think it's advantageous in the evening to turn uh, the attention of God's people toward uh, biography stories. And, uh, and I thought to myself that it's probably a good thing for us to think about narrative. It's good for us to think about stories and stories that resonate with us. And so... Um, and so let's turn our attention to another one of these uh, stories. When you think about the story that's in front of us, one of the things that I think is important for us to remember is the name of the prophet who appears for just a, for just a brief moment in this story. And there's a reason for that. Names mean something. Uh, when we look at, at names in the scripture, they oftentimes communicate something very valuable. For instance, uh, when you think about children's names, uh, you oftentimes, in a believing community, will hear names that immediately tell you something about the family and, and what they think or what they believe or about characters in the Bible that they value. I remember when my wife was pregnant with our first child, and I told her, I have his name. If he's a boy, I have it. And she said, what is it? And I said, Francis Amadeus Wolfgang Stuyvesant. I was dead serious. Uh, I loved Francis Schaeffer. And I loved Mozart. And I thought, this is a bet. This is a winning combination. <laughs> and she looked at me like, no. we are not doing that to our child. And, uh, and she won. And, uh, but uh, we named, you know, and, and you know, again, names mean something. I, I always kid my, I always tease my son. We named him Nathaniel because it means gift from God. And then he shortened it to Nathan, which just meant gift, and now people call him Nate, which I think is a knick-knack or something like that. <laughs> but Elisha is a name that means something. It means, my God is salvation, or my God saves. It approximates something like that. My God is salvation, my God saves. I think the name of the prophet is crucial to this story. If the last story was about faith, this story is about the God who saves us by faith. And so I want us to think about the God who saves as we think about Naaman. So let me have you turn your attention to the story. It's in chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 through 27. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leopard. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, 
Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, who read, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came in his horses and chariots and with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a message to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out and come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And uh, I'll end the reading uh, there, although I'll reference uh, some of the rest of it later. I want us to think again about the God who saves. And I want us to think about, I want us to, to be thinking about providence. Providence stands in the background of this story in a mighty way. It stands in the background of every story that we find in the Bible, and it stands in the background of our own story. Uh, it's interesting, um, it was pointed out to me by uh, Brad that the, the text of Scripture that Stephen referenced in his email came from the text that we just looked at together. Um, to my knowledge, he didn't know that was the text that we were going to be thinking about. Maybe he did, but, um, but I, I, I found that striking. But I want you to think with me about, about providential events. Uh, just go with me, for instance, to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, here we have Joseph. Popular figure, we all know the story. But there are some interesting things in the story of Joseph. For instance, <clears throat> it tells us in verse 4 of chapter 37, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now sometimes 
in, in providential events, um, we can look at them and we can look at maybe how foolish we were in the midst of an event, and we look at, uh, uh, we look at ourselves in hindsight and think, well, why did I do that? And this father may have done that. For instance, uh, look down in verse 14. This is when he sends Joseph after his brothers, and he says this, See, he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring me word. Now, the interesting thing is, you can't see it in the English, but in the, in the Hebrew it is, see if there is peace. We just learned that his brothers could not speak peaceably to him, and now he's saying to his son, go and see if there's peace with your brothers. You know, Jacob could have looked at himself after the fact and said, you know, that was a foolish thing that I did. But if you go on with the story, there are things that are accidental, happenstance, things that we can't explain. And we know that they're not by chance. We know that they're by the design of God himself. For instance, it just so happens in verse 15 that when Joseph arrives at the place where his brothers should be, they're not there. But in verse 15, a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him. An unnamed man is the linchpin for the people of Israel being moved into Egypt. It's a striking thing. The cord of God's providence binds everything together. There is not a mistake. There is not a false step that happens. And that cord wraps around our lives. And I want you to see that in this text. And I want you to see that the God who saves was the God of the slave girl, the God who saves was a mystery to the king. The God who saves was the God Elisha serves. And then the God who saves was the savior of Naaman. So let's first of all look at the God who saves is the God of the slave girl. Now, you begin this story, this account, and it's immediately sad that the, the thing about scripture is it says things so fast that we often don't pause to just reflect upon what's just been said. What's just been said is that marauders from Syria, Aram, have come down into Israel and on one of their trips took captive a little girl. Now think about that for a minute. The scriptures don't tell us about the mom who was left behind to weep and grieve about the father who was angry to even think about his daughter in the hands of the Syrians. It doesn't tell us about friends that were left behind. It doesn't tell us any of that. It just simply says that marauders came down, and while they came down, they grabbed a little girl and took her to live in another land. It doesn't even tell us how the girl adjusted. Certainly there was an adjustment. It just tells us that it happened. But I'll tell you what else it says. It says that this little girl, in God's providence, this little girl becomes the servant of Naaman's wife. And this man had leprosy. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you expect the little girl's response to be? I think it wouldn't be a stretch to think that this little girl might think of her leprous master good. You deserve. She had been stolen and made a slave, taken away from her parents. Good for you. 
I remember it was back, I think, around 2015, there was a plane that went down with three of bin Laden's family on it. And I had a friend of mine say to me, I'm tempted to, Jeff, I'm tempted to say they deserve it. She didn't say that. She apparently had a family who understood what the name Elisha means. God saves. God is my salvation. And you might say, you might be tempted to say at this point, and I wouldn't blame you. You need to hold on a second. Because what the direction you're going is a direction that I'm not liking very well. Her God saves. Did you not just tell us that she was abducted from her homeland, from her home, and taken to Syria? And it was God who put her there. And you know it's God who put her there because it says in verse 1, the Lord had given Aram victory through Naaman. In other words, you could go back to verse 1 and attribute this to God. God took this little girl from her home, set her down in Syria, more than that, set her down in the house of Naaman, who is the one responsible for taking her. So how can we say that this little girl's God is the God who saves? Now, the answer is hard to hear, but it's true nonetheless. The answer is, and it's clear from the text, that yes, God is the God who saves. He saves ultimately. This little girl was saved from her sins and set down in a place where she could minister to her enemies. Here's this little girl fulfilling the first great and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, and the second one that is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that because we're thinking about the mom and the dad who are left in Israel alone and childless. You know, I, I read a, a letter that Martin Luther wrote to the people of Germany. And he said this, he said, fearing heathen invasion, he said this, he said, we need to teach our children. We need to teach our children because our children will be taken from us. And if they are, maybe God will do some gospel good with them. That was the way he was thinking. That's hard to think like that. We resist that sort of thinking. And yet, I want to say this to you. This girl was saved from her sins. Now, I want to put a little flesh on that because I want you to think about this. I want you to think about it in a, in a tangible way. You say, well, yes, she was saved from her sins and that's ultimate. But I want you to think about this. This little girl was saved from bitterness and hate. And I don't know if you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been near bitterness and hate. But it is a terrible black hole to be around or to be in. I remember many years ago now I was struggling with a bit of bitterness myself. I didn't realize how bad I was struggling with bitterness. And I happened to be sitting with a friend of mine and we were talking and he stopped me and he said, he loved me. That's why I did it. He stopped me and he said, Jeff, 
let me stop you. My friend, you are in a hole of bitterness. And you are pulling everything into that hole with you. And that's pretty much where our end meeting ended. Not because I was angry, but because he was right. And I went home that day, and I said to God, I got, a, I got down on my knees and I said to God, God, I can't get out of this hole. And you're going to have to get me out of it. This girl had been delivered from bitterness and hate. That's an amazing deliverance. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. <clears throat> That's amazing. Now Mrs. Naaman goes to Mr. Naaman and says, You're not going to believe this, but the slave girl that you abducted you know, ripped away from her family, made her my servant. She wants you to be saved, and she actually says there's somebody in Israel who may be able to save you. And so he goes to the king, and the king says, sure, you're worth ten changes of clothes, take them with you, and see what it'll do for you. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that first point is... That first point is worth thinking about for the rest of our lives. But I want us to think now about the God who saves is a mystery to the king. It's absolutely delicious in one sense that Naaman pulls up to uh, or that Naaman pulls up to the king with gold, silver, and clothes. And he has a letter for the king. And the letter is read by the king. And the king thinks that the king of Assyria is trying to pick fight with him. He tears his clothes. He needs one of those new robes. <laughs> and this is what he says. And this is the most striking thing. It's in verse 7b. He says, Am I God to kill and make alive? Now that gives you some insight into leprosy, doesn't it? Because when you think about leprosy in chapter 12, you see uh, Numbers chapter 12, you see uh, this story about Miriam and Aaron opposing Moses. And one of the things that's interesting is that Miriam gets leprosy. But it's in that story that you begin to see, you have an insight into what leprosy was for the people of Israel. Let me, let me just read a couple of sentences to you. It's in verse 10. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous. And then you drop down a little further, and it says this in verse 12. Let her not be as one dead. In other words, leprosy was a sign of the curse. To be leprous, to have this Sarah was to have a visible expression, manifestation of the curse of the fall upon you. God was teaching the people of Israel about that. And here we find that the king understands that lesson. 
He understands that lesson because what does he say? He sees Naaman as leprous and therefore dead. And he says, am I able to make alive again? Am I able to bring to life? This man's as good as dead. Am I able to give him life? No, I'm not. And so I don't know how this happens. I don't know if the, the king tearing his robes made such a spectacle that it, it reaches outside of the palace. But somehow, Elisha heard. And so Elisha sends word to the king and says to him, you send him to me, that the king of Syria may know that there is a prophet of God in the land of Israel. And so he goes to him. The striking thing is this. The king doesn't think about Elisha. The king in his palace doesn't think about the prophet of God who is right there in his midst. And yet, here is this little girl who is up in Syria, up in Aram, and she thinks about the prophet of God. It's a striking thing. O king, why have you torn your clothes, said the prophet. Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And then let me hasten on to the God who saves is the God whom Elisha serves. It's, uh, it's humorous because what happens is Elisha sends Gehazi. This man pulls up with all of his clothes, with all of his gold, with all of his silver, with all of his men, outside of this little, surely, shack that the prophet lives in. And the prophet sends Gehazi, go and talk to the king. I just love that because when you think of it, you, you think to yourself, this man of God, this, this prophet, doesn't treat anybody differently. He treats this Shumanite woman the same as he treats the king. He shows no partiality. He says, Gehazi, go talk to him. But he's right at the door. Doesn't matter. You go and talk to him. He's a peculiar man. That's a lesson to us, isn't it? I mean, as an aside, it really is a lesson to us. Romans chapter 5 reminds us that we're like Elisha. In what sense? Elisha was the man who stood before the living God. And when you stand before the living God, everyone else is lesser. Whether it's a king or a Shunammite woman. Everyone else is below. And I want you to know Romans 5 tells us that we stand before the living God. We have been made children of that God, been introduced to that God through Jesus Christ, and we stand before him. And as we stand before him, we ought to take this lesson to heart, that we ought to treat the least as well as the great, and the great as well as the least. And so Gehazi gives him this instruction. He tells him, go and wash. Now, I want to, just want to, I, I want you to just Think with me for a minute at this point. I want you to think about, about what we've been seeing. We see Naaman and the king of Syria, and they're all, they're all exercised about getting healed. We see the king of Israel, and he's all exercised about them being exercised. But isn't it fascinating when you put them together and you put the servant girl and Elisha together, you see a difference in manner. In other words, the servant girl and Elisha are, 
are almost spectators to what's going on in the life of the king of Assyria and the king of Israel. And this is a commentary on, I think, how we should be as believers. Not disturbed by disturbing news, not afraid, but trusting in the Lord, knowing that he will bring us peace. I think that's one of the things that you take away from this story is you watch these characters who are in the Lord and they know exactly how to live. They know how to live in the best of times and in the worst of times. It's the unbeliever that doesn't know how to live. That's not saying, that's not saying that believers don't grieve, that we don't demonstrate emotions. It's not saying any of that. I'll tell you what, the worst, the wor- one of the worst scenarios I've ever been in was a funeral where a minister was looking at a grieving wife who was trying to hold back the tears to the extent that she was visibly shaking. And the minister looked at her and said, you don't see her grieving like she doesn't have any hope. And I thought, what a fool. Because you've just shut up that woman to her own grief. It's not saying that we don't grieve. It's saying that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We certainly grieve at loss. We certainly find ourselves in painful situations. But surely, we know the living God who stands behind every situation. And then this is the God who saves Naaman. Naaman hears the instruction that he's to go and wash in the Jordan River. And he becomes angry. Why, why angry? Well, it's really not difficult to answer. Naaman doesn't hear what's said to him. Naaman has an idea of what should have happened. He has an idea of how he should have been saved, how he should have been cleansed, and the prophet didn't live up to it. Deliverance was going to be some combination of God's doing and his doing some great thing. For instance, his doing some great thing was going to a great river and washing in that river, but certainly not Certainly not go and wash in the Jordan River. After all, it was dirty. But I want you to think about that for just a minute. He heard this, go and do. And what he didn't hear was, go and be cleansed. Go and be made clean, because I will make you clean. It wasn't of his own doing. But because he's a child of Adam, a son of Adam, He didn't understand that. He thought it was something that he did as well as God did. And then you have this servant. Again, here's another character who just emerges, ever calm, emerges and says in verse 13, Master, you don't understand. Now think about this. Here's a servant saying to this king, or this commander of the army, you don't understand. The prophet did tell you to do some great thing has nothing to do with the water. has nothing to do with you. He told you to go and wash in the Jordan. Why not do it? Now, here's the... Stop and think about this. God is doing something in this man. How do we know that? I'll tell you how we know that. Twice he's listened to a servant. Once in Syria, and now at the door of the prophet. He's listening to a servant. I'll tell you what God is doing to him. God is drawing him near. 
And when God draws us near through the Lord Jesus Christ, things change. We begin to change in our thinking. We begin to change in our speaking habits. We begin to change in our doing. And so this man dips. And what's the thing that he wants to do most after he dips and is found clean? He wants to do what the Shunammite woman did. He wants to get himself to the prophet. And when he comes, he says in verse 15, he says, he says in verse 15 this. He says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. And he comes to saving faith. And two things are important about his conversion. The first is this. It's interesting. He was not willing to wash in the dirty waters of the Jordan, but when he goes back to the prophet, he says, let me take some of Israel's dirt home so that I can stand on it when I worship it's a change that comes about. Interestingly, I think that this is one of those things that we can think about in terms of uh, when we think about when we think about government and scripture. One of the things that we understand is here this is this is a brief picture of dominion. The dominion that Christ will take over all the earth, while while he was mediator praying for the nations to be given to him, like in Psalm two. And then at his ascension in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he's given the nations as an, as, his, as an inheritance. Here's a little picture of this man, this commander of the Syrian army saying, I want to stand on the dirt of Israel. That's the idea. It's a, it's a snapshot of the dominion that Christ will bring by his mediatorial work. But there's a second thing here that's really fascinating. And one of the things that I think it, that we need to learn from is the gracious posture of the prophet at this point. This man asks for pardon twice. And he says this, he says, when my master goes to worship Rimmon and bows, I need, I need to hold on to my master and I, I will need to bow with him. But I'm not worshiping. And, and it's... And it's interesting, the prophet says, go in peace. That's a striking thing. That's a striking, that's a gracious posture that the prophet shows. Now, that would be, that would be great if that were the end of the story. But it's not. Gehazi, Gehazi is a, 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 a figure that, uh, Gehazi is a figure that plays the fool at this point, and it's unfortunate. But one of the things that we learn about Gehazi is this. He goes after Naaman. Naaman has offered to give Elisha all the gold, all the silver, all the changes of clothes that he had, and Elisha wants nothing from him. So Gehazi, upset with his master, goes after Naaman and says, hey, uh, nothing's wrong. But, but there are two seminary students, and they're poor. Just a couple of changes of clothes, maybe a talent of silver. You know, help them out. Oh, oh, of course, of course. Naaman gives them double what they ask. And then Gehazi comes back to the prophet, and this is what he says. He says, the, Elisha says to him, did my heart not go with you when you did that? And, and I just want you to think about this for a second. Gehazi does not realize, he doesn't realize what the name Elisha means. 
He doesn't realize that the name Elisha means, my God is salvation. He doesn't realize that God could supply him with a couple of changes of clothes if he really wanted them, right? If he was in need of them and God saw fit to provide them. He, did, he doesn't understand that God could provide him with a world, a mountain of silver, if God saw there was wisdom in it. He doesn't understand any of that. And you can see it in his actions. But the people who understand that my God saves, my God is salvation, clearly, in all these situations, are content to rest in him and whatever his providences bring. And as hard as that lesson is, it's a lesson that every one of us in this room or outside of it need to learn.